Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Anna Kerr from the Feminist Legal Clinic. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me on, Beth. Can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm well. I'm a solicitor. I've been a solicitor for almost thirty years. I uh, started my legal career with the prison unit of the Aboriginal Legal Service, and I've worked with a wide range of community legal services since then. And my work has ranged from criminal law, um, some civil law, and family law. So I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades. But then I decided to focus my efforts specifically in areas which relate to women's human rights, including domestic violence advocacy. And with a group of other women, I incorporated Feminist Legal Clinic in 2017. And since then, we've been continuing with that work. Uh, On a personal side of things, I've got four children with my partner. Um, He's a bit of a computer geek um, with Chinese-Malaysian background. And um, I've known him since I met him at university when I was fresh off the farm. Right. Um, so what was it that inspired you to found the Feminist Legal Clinic? Well, I wanted to continue the work I'd been doing in social justice and human rights um, with other community legal services. And I also wanted a legal practice that would have the flexibility to enable me to juggle a legal career and family responsibilities. And uh, I just sort of had a thought about, a think about what was most needed and what I could provide that I didn't think was um, available elsewhere. And I could see um, a gap in the market in that the existing services um, were unable to meet the demand for assistance from women and from women's groups and were not sufficiently informed by what I would regard as a, um, a feminist perspective. Could you explain about the main objectives of the Feminist Legal Clinic? Well, uh, under our constitution, we are focused on relieving the poverty, distress and suffering of women by advancing their human rights. And this means we take on casework in key areas, law reform work and community legal education. um, And we provide advocacy from a perspective that is not always available from existing services. We are particularly focused on the unique role that mothers play in the life of their children. And we are very concerned at the removal of children from mothers in many contexts. Uh, We are also concerned about the early sexualization of girls and the objectification of women and girls. We regard prostitution and pornography as inherently exploitative. And we're concerned about the commodification of women and children's bodies by means of surrogacy arrangements. 
But most of our frontline work actually relates to domestic violence and freeing women from violent and abusive men. So we basically we advocate for women to be free legally and financially on both a micro and a macro level. So in order for women to be liberated, they need to be freed not only from abusive and exploitative men in their homes and workplaces, but also from an abusive patriarchal state that fails to acknowledge and fairly compensate women for their work, um, including their unpaid work as mothers and carers, and also for the suffering that they uh, experience at the hands of men. It's interesting that you mentioned about the uh, surrogacy uh, because there's, you know, there's been quite a bit of, um, it's got quite a bit of publicity um, overseas surrogacy and the situations that are occurring there. But there, there seems to be a real market in surrogacy lately uh, for gay men, doesn't there? Yes, that's right. And, and Australians are some of the major customers internationally in that um, marketplace. And this is something that we're very concerned about, that this is because it, it enables really very major human rights transgressions in relation to women and children. And there's a, there's a sort of a, a counter narrative running saying that this is empowering for women to be able to sell um, their bodies and their children. Uh, but of course, I think if people reflect carefully on this, we can see that, that is, that's not empowering. It's not wealthy women, after all, who are taking advantage of this opportunity. It's definitely women who are economically disadvantaged and often they're doing this in order to, um, to, to provide for their existing family. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a really big problem. Yeah, it, it would be. It would be, especially when, you know, women have sort of carried that baby for nine months. It, it must just be such an, an emotional ordeal to hand the baby over, mustn't it? Oh, we think so. I mean, we, we put a lot of, um, we've, we work with a lot of women who have had that experience of having children removed from them. And um, there's a lot of research about the, the, you know, very crucial bond and attachment between a mother and a baby. And, of course, that's very different because a man can conceive a child and, and never be aware that he's um, even conceived a child. But a woman can't give birth to a child without it absolutely impacting on her physically and, and psychologically in a way that really changes their whole life, regardless of what then takes place. I think a woman's life is never the same. And we've certainly talked to many women who have had children removed. And also to children, this is the other thing, from the perspective of the child, there's a bit of a primal wound. We work with adoptee rights activists and they tell us that that's a primal wound that they experience and it, it only gets, it doesn't get better. It, it just gets worse with age. And um, although there's a huge narrative for them to be grateful um, about having been adopted. In fact, there's a, a lot of lifelong pain associated with that. Yeah, yeah, right. So I know that the Feminist Legal Clinic have, have made quite a few um, sub submissions to the Australian Law Reform Commission, but um, what, what is one of the most recent ones? Uh, I think we, yes, we do a lot of submissions. Um, certainly we've done a submission to the Australian Law Reform Commission related to the review of the family law system. Um, so that was in 2018. But of course, that's one of many submissions that we have done on that topic. Um, the dysfunctional family law system 
keeps us very busy. It's a very strong theme in the work that we do. I receive more contacts from women caught up in our in toxic family law proceedings than anything else, I think. Um, the law, family law system is really like an epicentre of human rights infringements for Australian women and children. And we've recently conducted a survey um, of women on this topic and were horrified by some of the um, feedback that we received. And we've sent a letter to the current Chief Justice and were able to have a meeting with him and other um, key personnel at the family court. And we've got an ongoing correspondence now um, about these issues and, and failings in the family court. Um, we're particularly concerned about the many women who report to us um, that they've been accused of parental alienation because they raised concerns about the fathers of their children being violent or sexually abusive. Um, and too often the children are then removed from them because they've raised these um, concerns and allegations. And, and then the children are, are, can end up being placed with the men who are suspected perpetrators. And we think this is just simply unacceptable and, and we're doing everything we can to raise awareness of this problem and, and try to um, find a solution um, because it really is, is so awful that women and children's safety is being endangered in this way. How is the justice system failing Aboriginal women well, the justice system is failing Aboriginal women extensively and, and unfortunately that's not news. Um, they are the most quickly growing jail population um, and there is a continued failure to address the shortcomings within the system that results in their needless incarceration and, and too often deaths in custody. Um, we just continue to hear of women being incarcerated for minor matters or even unpaid fines. And, and all this is happening despite the repeated recommendations from the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody so many years ago and, and subsequent inquiries. And, and, and it doesn't seem to matter how many of these recommendations are made. It, it seems to continue to happen. Uh, I think the failure of our society to properly recognise and acknowledge the historical and ongoing wrongs committed against the Australian Aboriginal people means that we will continue to commit them. So, for example, our government continues to oversee extensive, extensive removal of children from Aboriginal mothers, um, which, as we've talked about, is, is a most cruel and unusual punishment and a terrible infringement of the human rights of both women and children. I, I think um, the answer to that is that the justice system is failing Aboriginal women extensively, and if we could address that, um, we probably would be able to improve the system, not only for Aboriginal women, but for all women. Well, it, it seems like when uh, George Floyd was, was killed by police, there, there was sort of an emotional outcry all around the world, and, and especially in Australia as well. A lot of people were, you know, were shocked and horrified by that crime. But there, there seems to be a lot of people in, in, in Australia who don't realise the situation that's going on with, with Aboriginal um, people, do they? Yes, it's, it's really sad that um, we're not sort of getting the same level of um, community involvement in the protests in relation to, I mean, deaths like Ms Do in, in Western Australia, and there was footage um, in relation to that too, because some people have said to me the reason George Floyd's um, death received so much attention was because of the video footage, but there have been 
deaths like Miss Do's in, in Western Australia where there is footage available um, and it's really very distressing to watch. Um, and yet it doesn't seem to receive the same level of community outrage, I think because it's probably not given the same um, time in the media. And um, that's a, it's a great concern, really. I don't know what the solution to that is. Um, I mean, really, there has to be um, a, a desire to do the right thing by Aboriginal people. And at the moment, it, it doesn't seem, it doesn't, it certainly isn't happening, is it? No, it's certainly not. How are we failing victims of domestic violence? Oh, well, when I started my career, the issue of, in domestic violence was the failure of police to act on complaints made by women. And, of course, that hasn't changed. We, we continue to see women who are unable to get assistance from the police. We've, we've heard recently that of many of the women who have um, died um, in domestic violence incidents have, um, you know, tried to get um, support and assistance and protection from the police without any success. But now we've got a new problem, um, and that's the problem that the, the police are now increasingly misidentifying the woman as the perpetrator and bringing the um, protection orders or AVOs and charges against her. And someone's done some research on that recently, which indicates that a number of these women who have died, not only did they not get the support from the police, but they themselves had been subjected to proceedings being brought against them. Um, so the extent to which women are being misidentified as perpetrators of domestic violence when they are in fact the victims is a huge problem. And I don't think the general public's aware that, you know, sometimes it's like a quarter of the list is made up of women who are being identified as being the, the perpetrator or defendant in the matter. And, and when you examine the circumstances, it's almost, it's almost entirely an example of how perpetrators are able to use the system to perpetuate their abuse. So it's, it's systems abuse. Um, and of course, particularly in the case of Aboriginal women, this can result in um, women being unfairly incarcerated because once orders are put in place, it's only too easy for a breach to be alleged. And often women can end up in custody and, and being separated from their children. And thus this can perpetuate intergenerational trauma and disadvantage. Uh, in general, what we are seeing is that the domestic violence laws are being weaponised by men against women. Um, and when you look at the details of these cases, women are often acting either in self-defence or the incidents are kind of laughably minor in nature and incapable of actually inciting fear in the man, but are being used as a ploy to further victimise the woman using the legal system. So anyhow, as a result of all this, it's making women wary of approaching the police, not just because they won't do anything to help, but because they might actually turn it against the woman. Yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. I mean, you've, you've just got to look at, you know, generally men and women, and, and men are much more physically stronger than women, aren't they? Yes, well, it's very rare that we, we see cases where the woman is physically stronger than the man. It's, it's almost invariably the case that the woman is physically weaker and, and very often also financially dependent on the man. That's the other a big key factor. And the other restrictive factor is that women tend to be the primary caregivers of the children and constrained in their ability to escape the situation as a result of having those dependent children. Um, so that those are the three factors that really mean that it's not an equal playing field, um, the, the differences in strength and 
um, financial resources really make a, a big difference. Do you think that there is any way that domestic violence could be reduced? Well, I think if there if there is a will to change things, there is always going to be a way. But unfortunately, I think we have a legal system which is riddled with perpetrators of domestic violence all the way up to the top. Um, and as a result, we've got key players who are not genuinely inclined to make effective change. Um, that's not to say, you know, that all police are, you know, are perpetrators, but unfortunately only need certain key people to affect the culture um, of the system. So we are getting a lot of lip service and media reporting about the issue, but no actual cultural change on the front line. And I think we need to campaign for organisations that are actually operated and managed exclusively by feminist women, um, like the police stations in South America, which seem to be making a difference over there. And I'm concerned that many of our women's organisations are too accountable to organisations controlled by male interests and that there's lots of conflicts of interest um, as a result of that. And, and so we really need to structure organisations so that women have more autonomy and have more decision-making power over these, particularly in key areas like domestic violence. I think the other key thing is that we have to provide women with ways of escaping male control. And unfortunately, particularly after having children, women are often unable to effectively leave abusive men, largely due to financial dependency, and also as a result of the operation of our family laws, which effectively stop women from escaping abusive relationships. Women need to understand that once they conceive a child with a man, they, effect they effectively give up a, a number of fundamental human rights, such as the right to freedom of movement, because they will for forevermore have to consider that man's wishes, regardless um, of whether he has been making any positive parenting contribution or not. I suppose when I say forevermore, I mean until the child is uh, adult enough for it not to be a factor. But while the legal system gives lip service to the best interests of the child, it fails to acknowledge a very obvious fact, which is that men are overwhelmingly responsible for the physical and sexual violence within our communities. And that the single most effective thing that you can do to keep a child safe is to not leave them unsupervised with a male. Um, unfortunately, when a woman leaves an abusive husband, she almost invariably exposes her children to the risk of being left with him unsupervised into the future. Because it's very difficult for women to secure no contact orders um, from the family court even in cases where there is a documented history of abuse. Um, short of uh, convictions, it's, it's really very difficult um, for that to happen. Could you tell us about the study into women defendants in domestic violence cases? Uh, that's a study uh, that I'm collaborating with, uh, um, I'm collaborating on with Professor Rita Shackle at the University of Sydney Law School. Um, we've applied for some funding uh, for that purpose. I, um, because I'm quite close to the action in, the, in terms of the work I do, I'm not engaged in the actual process of recruiting or interviewing subjects. Um, that's handled by, handled by Professor Shackle and, and other university staff. But I think it's very important that research is conducted in this area for some of the reasons that we've discussed above. I think the research is... Um, focused on New South Wales. But if listeners are interested in more information, they can find out more about it through Feminist Legal Clinic's website. And I believe in future there's going to be something as well put up on the University of Sydney's websites. Um, but yes, we're interested in this problem that I've been talking about, that there are too many women 
being named as defendants in domestic violence cases. Now, with uh, with all the the updates in technology, uh, it, it's, it's brought up a lot of problems of sexual harassment online. Could you explain about what sexting is? Yeah. Um, well, sexting is the sending or receiving of sexually explicit photos and videos on mobile phones. Um, this seems to be quite a feature of our modern pornified culture. Um, we regard this as activity which, you know, objectifies women and girls. I mean, of course, boys too also send um, photos of themselves, but often there's pressure put on, you know, particularly hear about it with young girls being pressured to provide explicit photos of themselves. And, and we think this activity is also a sort of form of grooming um, women and girls for activities like pornography and prostitution. And I appreciate that there would be listeners who might say, um, oh, I just share photos with a trusted partner. So what harm is there to that? And I'd say, unfortunately, after all the work I do in the context of divorce and domestic violence, um, I know that even trusted partners can and do turn nasty. And our judgment is often impaired when we are in love um, or think we're in love. And I think a trustworthy partner would not ask you to do this because it obviously equips them with a weapon that can be used against you. And as we've seen happen to so many women, even celebrities, um, this can be a very painful experience. And I think um, generally the continued emphasis on the body beautiful is really oppressive to the majority of women. Um, and, the need, and we need to start demanding less emphasis on our physicality and more on our intellect and character um, so I think in the long term, women are better served by relationships with men who are interested in their thoughts and feelings and not just asking them for explicit photos of themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Look, I've just been thinking about what you were saying about the Aboriginal women having their babies taken away, um, you know, because there, there was an apology put out about the stolen generation. I mean, have... Have people not learnt from that or are people just, you know, repeating the same thing again? Is this going to be another stolen generation? Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, we've had repeated apologies, not just the stolen generation, um, but also we've had apologies for the to the mothers who had their babies, the unmarried mothers, for instance, who had their babies removed. There was an apology given to them and I think um, there was another apology given in relation to was it the, the child migrants? But anyhow, the, the government's um, good at giving apologies by now, but some, a lot of these apologies seem to be a bit empty as well because if you're really sorry about something that you've done, you don't keep doing it. Um, I think um, not to mention that they also made it very clear that there would be no compensation for forthcoming. That was another element of the apology. But I think, yeah, the main thing is also not to repeat the wrong. And I think the concern is that it is still happening, that the numbers of children being removed from Indigenous women um, exceeds that of um, earlier stolen generation. So, um, and I'm certainly coming across cases of, of children being removed from their mothers very rapidly and really um, in circumstances where it really does seem um, uncalled for. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a drive to take children younger so that they can be adopted out more successfully and I think that this is driven um, by the market the the market for babies rather than out of 
really considering what is in the best interests of both the child and the mother. So can babies be adopted out without their parents' permission? Well, the thing is, if, if um, they're removed from the mother without their permission on, in the context of a care and protection matter, so that often women are um, having babies taken from them because they're, they're in a domestic violence relationship and so that the fears that are held for the child's safety relate to the male partner. And sometimes the, the, the mother isn't yet, hasn't reached a point where she is willing or able to leave. They, they may not have recognised um, the extent to which that endangers the child. Um, so there's a tendency for um, community services to step in and remove the child. Um, but I think we need to do more in terms of supporting the women to be able to leave these abusive relationships. Um, and part of that is financial, um, be able to provide them with an alternative like housing and financial security. And part of that is also the sort of education and emotional support that women need. Um, because a lot of women, there's a lot of um, emphasis in, in a lot of cultures, in, in, including our culture, I mean, to have a father. There's, and we've put a lot of emphasis on that. And sometimes women think that they're doing the right thing to try and keep the family together, even when the father is very abusive. And our culture is kind of um, also putting a lot of emphasis on you know having a father. But unfortunately, um, a lot of fathers uh, you know, are really not, it's not in the child's best interest to have that relationship because if the man is abusive, that whether he's abusive to the mother or the children or both, I mean, it's not in the child's interest, for instance, to witness um, this level of abuse. So in, in enforcing it that the mother must have a continuing relationship with an abusive man who's fathered her children means that a lot of, a lot of young people are exposed to a lot of violence and abuse that could be avoided. Yeah, and you said it's um, probably intergenerational as well. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't think we have time to cover all the issues impacting on the human rights of women. Um, but uh, no, I think we've, 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 we've covered a lot though. Thanks very much, Beth. Oh, thanks. It's been great having you on the program. And I've been speaking with Anna Kerr from the Feminist Legal Clinic. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.